A dictionary definition of the word context is the interrelated conditions in which something exists or occurs. AQMB's Artist Statement podcast is a conversation series exploring the fresh perspectives in art generated by these changing contexts, politically, culturally, socially, other. It features artists and thinkers orbiting our world, where we chat in response to developments in technology, communication and beyond. I'm Associate Editor Jared Davis, and on today's episode I talk with Joey Holder, who is known for her installations, videos and web-based projects that speak to themes of contemporary myth-making, science, ecologies and online culture. Joey has held solo exhibitions at the likes of Matt's Gallery London, Weising Art Centre and Sonic Axe Amsterdam. Her shows create expansive mixed-media environments, for instance her most recent exhibition, Semmel Paris, in which the artist's work occupied a disused swimming pool and leisure centre left to ruin in North London. I spoke with Joey last year on AQNB about the Chaos Magic project space which she co-runs in Nottingham. Her take on contemporary mysticism, although being a well-trodden topic at this moment, was particularly interesting coming from an artist who has for years explored our strange relationship with the rational in an online age. Okay, so I'm joined by Joey Holder. Joey, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. So I thought we could talk first about your most recent project, Samalparas. It was a video and installation project in this really amazing location, uh, an abandoned swimming pool and leisure centre in Hampstead in North London. Maybe if you could just give us a a bit of an introduction to that and these uh, Samalparas eel populations that you were looking at. And also the term Samalparas was a bit of a new one for me uh, and could be for listeners as well. Yeah, sure. Um, So... I'm not even sure if I pronounce it right, but I think it's Semel Paris. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's a it's a scientific. I could be wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a scientific term to um, describe creatures that um, that sort of put all of their energy and resources into um, reproduction, and they and they only um, reproduce once in their life, and then after they um have reproduced they die so um so this particular project was looking at like you said um uh, eels so particularly like um european eels and what they do is once in their lifetime when they're ready to breed they actually travel from um european waters across um the sea across the atlantic to the uh, the sargasso sea um where they which is about i think it's over like 3000 kilometers so it's this huge um journey that they make and they're also going from fresh water to uh to salt water and they're going when they go to the um sargasso sea they swim like right into the depths of the sea as well to like sort of the bottom of the mariana trench so that's actually some of the yeah deepest uh water in in the world um and they go there to breed and then and then they die and then the juvenile um elver eels um or glass eels as they're called like swim uh swim back um to european um waters again to then grow up and sort of repeat the process so um yeah i became interested in um eels <laughs> um after i i did a i did a, a trip actually to to asia to china and to south korea and i visited uh, an eel farm um when i was there and so there's a huge um uh sort of industry of taking like juvenile eels um, and then farming them growing them up um particularly like asian markets um 
to grow them up and to then to have them as food. So, and this is like a huge, uh, huge industry and um, eels are actually the most trafficked animal by number and, and value in the world as well. And a lot, lots of them are actually trafficked like illegally, um, captured illegally because of the, um, yeah, the value that they can that they can obtain for the traffickers in like in, in, in these markets. Um, so, I mean, I was particularly interested in that as well, this kind of like complex kind of uh, food chain. And um, I mean, also I'm very interested in, in the way that the eels travel and the way that they move. I mean, scientists are quite like perplexed by um, their breeding habits and they don't know a lot about their breeding habits and um i mean there's a famous quote by i think it's aristotle that says eels are born out of the earth's mud and guts or something like that so like that they that they kind of like um come into being through like spontaneous generation or something because like back then they didn't have a clue but um and freud as well was um there's quite a famous and when he was studying medicine he was one of his uh one of his sort of like jobs that they set in was to um to find the uh sexual organs of eels and like he never could find them so um yeah there's all this kind of like mystery surrounding like their their reproduction as well so i mean i guess like i'm kind of interested in that and how they kind of um yeah how they can kind of like make this journey and how that kind of like journey is almost like i mean could it be ingrained in their kind of like genetics or their their biology or um th- there's also been studies like to sort of like track them with the with the relationship to the tides and the moon and things like that as well so i'm kind of interested in yeah like all of that kind of like complexity around it as well i apologize i just um realized that my dog is actually snoring like uh. <laughs> You might be able to hear that. But. <laughs> That's cute. And so the show opened, uh, I think, mid-February and ran until late March. So this timeline almost uh, happened precisely as coronavirus was, of course, sweeping across Europe. And I think the last two weeks of the show were affected uh, by uh, the beginning of lockdown. Yeah, it was only, um, I think, I mean, we was quite lucky. I think we only lost a week, the last week of the exhibition. So um yeah i feel lucky in that respect mm. uh, so it's a very timely work of course uh as a, as a piece about um uh, ecosystems and the effects of industry on them so i was wondering if your thoughts uh, have about the work have shifted at all or have been affected by the events since its opening yeah i mean i guess i haven't like sort of I mean, I think like quite eerily, actually, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I do make work. I mean, I didn't know that this work, you know, like before I made it, obviously Corona hadn't, um, uh, you know, hadn't kind of happened. But um, I mean, I mean, a lot of with a lot of my projects, I do sort of like make work that responds to like real world, you know, events um, and respond to what's happening. Um, I mean, you know, it's not a kind of like new thing that, you know, that what we, um, 
our effect on the world, what we're doing to, uh, you know, ecosystems and how we're entangled with that is not, you know, a kind of like new thing. So I guess I don't know. I don't really like think of the project any like differently or like kind of think of it like um, directly like to do with that. But I mean, of course, like, I mean, how we, um, you know, how we treat how we treat like populations of creatures how like a massive effect that we've had on the you know natural systems is going to you know affect like what comes about and we're deeply entangled within that um and we can't kind of separate ourselves um from that i mean the eels in particular there has been like quite a massive um uh like schemes to like protect them and to um sort of increase their numbers again there's been like a kind of like multi-billion pound roller i mean you might have seen some of the um i mean i think it's been going on about like 10 15 years now but you might have seen some like headlines um there's been articles in the guardian and so forth about like trying to save the population um but of course it's not like you know just one species like that species you know is part of an ecosystem with lots of other um species and you know we're part of that as well so it's i mean it's yeah it's all this kind of like entangled thing and like we have to kind of like realize that we are part of that and whatever effect that we do is going to have a knock-on yeah effect so do you think the uh, virus could help maybe mainstream some of these uh, ideas around inst- interspecies thinking and challenging anthropocentrism a little bit? Um, because you did see at the beginning, back at the beginning of the pandemic, there was, uh, well, of course, there was a racial framing around the foreign virus, etc. But there was also a lot of discussion around um, the idea of uh, non-human things coming into our body, but actually that the relationship between our, ourselves and bacteria and viruses is a lot more complicated. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope that. I mean, I hope that it does in some respects that people, you know, like uh, that there is this kind of we live in this. I don't know. I wanted to say like a delicate balance, but I don't think it's a balance like at all. Like, I mean, I think you know we like I said before, the way, the, why we exist is because of our relationship with other, other species and other resources, and we wouldn't exist otherwise. Um, and I hope that, yeah, it does make people think in that respect, but then at the same time, I mean, I think what unfortunately, like most of the stuff that I see about this stuff is like, um, uh, what's what's kind of rife in on social media and um yeah in like these online discussions it seems to be more of like more of the same of this kind of like divisive politics and blaming uh like you say like it's like um, a foreign invasion from somewhere else um or blaming the spread of it or you know this that there's a second wave coming and that's because of oh it's because of like mass gatherings of protesters or it's because of um these people or and i think that that's that's what's like really really scary when um that becomes this is the scary thing in the world now and like this is the thing that's gonna attack us and get us so it becomes politicized and then you know used to kind of like divide opinion and control people again like and that relates yeah probably to other projects that we're going to talk about later but um that i've done 
Um, but yeah, that's what's kind of really scary to me again in this instance that it's like used again as this kind of like not kind of like coming together to um to fight this thing but like to blame people about why the you know that there's a crisis so uh, another thing that struck me about this work um Samuel Paris is uh the way that you tend to use symbols quite a lot uh, like magical symbols and sephirot or at least that's what they remind me of um, can you tell me a little bit about your interest in symbolism? Yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think at first I was just quite naively drawn to like certain symbolism and um, I didn't really know, if, like I didn't really kind of like question at first what that was. I mean, I guess I'm kind of drawn to... Um, like also i guess like the shifting meaning of certain symbols and like how like everybody can well certain groups maybe certain people could get behind an ideology or a symbol or like and how that can kind of maybe unite people through religion or magic or ritual or or anything else um but yeah i started to use them in my work yeah just i don't know like being intuitively drawn to certain symbols and then um i mean i'd use like um i guess like one of the first times i started using symbols was like i used a jewish symbol um for tetragrammaton and during that sh during the show which i mean i use that particular symbolism like lots of like i mean i'm not saying that this is because of my show at all but like lots of sort of stuff like just sort of like came into line and stuff that was happening in the world and i was like oh my god like this seems to like really i don't know like somehow link up and then i and then i became more interested in 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 yeah i guess like magical symbols and um and you know thinking that they really had a power and 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 can actually like do stuff in the world so i began i became really interested in the in the practice of like chaos magic and things like that as well um and yeah i mean i guess hmm, i mean it's yeah it's a it's a vast area like to talk about and um but i think i mean i think it's also something that um, I mean, when, you know, when discussing magic and things like that, it's something that's become very, um, ubiquitous, like it's, 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 it's in art a lot at the, at the moment. And I, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm quite like against that kind of like bandwagon mentality, of like, you know, going towards something, you know, that's just, that's just being used. But I think that this, um, maybe like there's this kind of pull towards those kind of practices because it feels like um, as um, human beings we used to have maybe like a more of a, a sort of like communal relationship with um, coming together and um, practicing you know like maybe like having religion and coming together in communities and for worship or um or maybe other rituals or anything else and like you know throughout history and but it seems like i think that we've you know in today's western society definitely like we've we we come together less and less for these kind of um these kind of things so um i think like that the 
this kind of re-exploration of, of magical practice and things like that is is a really strong way of kind of maybe bringing people to come together around these practices i don't know yeah and like i mean i guess like maybe it gives people a sense of um of of agency and power as well in the world when maybe like we've 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 kind of lost that as well like um i mean if you kind of focus your intentions maybe using like these magical practices you know it 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 really does fucking work (laughs) Uh, what what about the relationship between the internet and magic um like this collective myth making uh i've been quite interested a little bit about um the myth of Ong's hat. Do you know this? this? No. Tell me about it. Yeah, yeah. Ong's hat. It was also known as the um, Incunabula Papers, I think, uh, and and it started in the 1980s as a, a in, originally like a, a pamphlet brochure that was distributed around about this secret uh, science experiment in a place in New Jersey that was unlocking the secrets to interdimensional um, travel. Um, so the way the paper was written was kind of this mix of, uh, like hard science and then using the language of conspiracy a little bit. And then it circulated on early internet bulletin boards, uh, I think in the eighties and early nineties, and then kind of really exploded a bit by the two thousands on, um, internet forums and became sort of a bit of a, uh, like an alternative alternate reality game. Uh, so where the participants were kind of in on it, they're in on it, they knew they were all working to create this, um, mythical storyline. And I guess in the language of the paper, there's hard science involved, but also the participants were really interested in these, like you say, this myth building, um, they were quite interested in these chaos magic ideas of, I guess, willing things into reality. Yeah, that was just sort of a, a bit of an improvised explanation of the project. But yeah, that sounds that sounds great. Um, yeah, you know, them imagining this this myth or this reality, and that manifests, and that becomes, you know, something that is more in the world. I guess. I guess, like, if enough people get. Um, I mean, this isn't with, you know, you can call it magic or you can call it other things, but I mean, if enough people kind of get behind something, whether it's, whether it's, you know, like true, false, you know, or, you know, whatever it is, they get behind a story and and then there's the belief and the, um, and then that, and then that kind of becomes bigger and travels that becomes like this, uh, this, I don't know, like this ideology or whatever you want to call it. And you kind of really do manifest that, that reality and it becomes a thing, you know, I guess that's, I don't know, that's related to, to art practice and, and everything else so you know what you kind of but what you manifest what you believe like does become your reality like you know if you have a strong intention of something then then that 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 it will you know become um i guess this is a good point at which to talk about the chaos magic project that you're involved with a bit in nottingham um uh the project space could you give us a bit of a background on that yeah um I mean, I've been running a space now for, I think it's a couple of years. And I mean, the, the, the space is called Chaos Magic. And as I say, like, I've kind of like dabbled a little bit with, um, with research uh, into Chaos Magic, but I'm no, I'm no expert. Um, and I mean, the name of the space, I mean, I wouldn't say that we are, 
you know solely like dealing with you know like dealing with themes of of chaos magic um i mean we we deal with quite a broad um, range of themes so you know it could be magic and um, spirituality um we've also got a space where we um, have like a little piece of land where we grow food and herbs and things um i mean it was originally like set up um well it still is now to like support um younger artists so support younger graduates so they join as members and they work with me um over a period of time it's usually a year um and then like sort of we work together to put on a public program and i mean i guess like a lot of what we do is kind of like i really stress that i don't want to kind of just uh like put on artists that have uh quite an insular i don't want to put on just like quite insular work like you know it's not it's not interesting for me to just kind of like stage exhibitions to bolster artists cv it's more like how um like certain artists may be working like through spiritual means or may have magical practices or like have this like more expanded practices of yeah collaboration and community and like um yeah how we can work together so i mean we do sometimes do um we've had like a spell casting workshop and um yeah performed certain rituals like in the space we um sort of made our uh logo like was made through a kind of ritual and making a sigil and creating our sort of like intention for the space um yeah so the symbols kind of like created around that um yeah so um i mean but it's really yeah like as i say the project is really like about how yeah we can come together with as artists and bring in you know members of the community as well that i mean a lot of the people that have been involved with like visiting the space as well and getting involved with the workshops and stuff um and not uh i'd say 50 percent of them aren't like necessarily into into art so i think that that's a good um a good sign as well that we're not just kind of like talking to the converted we're not just kind of like talking to yeah like just the art crowd so um so it's been nice you've mentioned a bit in our chat um this loss of religion and increased secularity in the world so i guess this would be a good point in which to talk about another project of yours from a couple of years back. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this Latin word. Is it ad credo? Ad credo? I think it's ad credo, ad yeah. Credo, yeah, the, the deep belief network. So, yeah, ad credo, um, I mean, that means something that you put credence in, something that you put trust in, something that you believe in. And that was a project, um, yeah, that I started... Um, I mean, it, yeah, it launched a couple of years ago, but I guess like two years prior to that, I sort of started the, the research around that. Um, and that was quite, that was quite easy, eerily timed actually as well, because when the, when the exhibition actually launched, like the main exhibition, um, it was the same time that the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke. So the project was, all about um i guess like the construction of belief in online networks so um i mean at the time like t- well two years prior when i started to research this kind of stuff it was like 2016 so it was like trump getting into power um uh brexit 
and um the talk of um i mean and also like i guess like that was the start of when we would see terms like echo chambers and filter bubbles um online through social media that the idea that you know whatever you um believe as a person you're going to get the same thing um sort of accelerated reflected back at you um in online networks to kind of like reaffirm you know your beliefs um and you know potentially manipulate what you believe as well to to make you do certain things so and that could be like to vote in a certain way which we've you know which we've seen over the last few years of like how that can they not operate with these companies so it was quite funny actually because i i got accused of um by wanting my five minutes of fame because i was making work about cambridge analytica or something but i mean it wasn't like um you know i'd started researching that sort of stuff about two years before and of course that it's not just you know cambridge analytica was the big story but there's like thousands of these companies that exist that you know extract um our our data like analyze the behavior our behaviors online and then you know try to manipulate that and i mean i think that that relates to maybe what we were discussing before as well like how you know that it really scares me like in this this time as well that there are these like such like divisive politics going on like online and like rather rather than coming together like to fight something um i mean i think that the powers that be know that exactly like that the more you know divided people are the easier it is to control them mm. so i think that we have to be kind of like educating ourselves on these kind of like manipulative what people are doing to manipulate people in that way and the way that they're being manipulated um the, you know the, how we how we fight and to how we fight that um so yeah the project was at credo the deep belief network was was around those kind of like uh those things and it was a sort of huge video installation um I'd, I'd also kind of created this like pseudo company that um was a kind of like pseudo company that acted a bit like cambridge analytica and one part of the exhibition was this kind of um i guess like a bit of a kind of like clinical showroom or something for the company and then in the other part of the um the exhibition the other huge room was the kind of hellscape that this company has created and there was lots of different characters that um were part of the video so i had sort of like cgi talking heads of of donald trump and kanye west and peter thiel i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing his name right <laughs> you probably pronounce it in a different way um who else was in there there was aliens of course and <laughs> like mythical creatures and so forth so and they was all like um i mean i didn't change anything that they said it was all saying saying things that they'd, they'd actually said and these kind of like cartoon characters um and i guess i kind of wanted this uh sort of intense fractured kind of narrative of them kind of like all talking on top of each other um, there was like nine channel sounds so they'd kind of come in at different times and there'd be this this different sort of soundscape as well um yeah all these kind of like different voices that were conflicting each other but you know like no kind of way 
way through that i guess um well i hope that's what it looked like but who knows like um <laughs> so one of these characters peter teal i think it's a hard t or i'm, I'm not too sure <laughs> this is an outcome of living online purely and only reading yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so he's one of the characters, and I wanted to talk about this because um, his company in real life, uh, Palantir, uh, a data analytics company, sort of a bit like Cambridge Analytica, is named after this Lord of the Rings crystal ball that's used by the villain Saruman. So, so I think this is a really interesting example of cultural imaginaries influencing um, the development of science and technology. So, like, um, Silicon Valley famously is very influenced by this old hippie uh, ideology, like the California ideology. Um, but now we have companies like Palantir literally building their uh, iconography out of comic book villains. So, yeah, I think your work raises a bit this idea that cultural imaginaries affect the development of science and technology. So, yeah, so I wonder what you th your thoughts are on this. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um I mean, and I, I do sort of use that as a, um, uh, in my work as, um, for example, like there's the Edcredo project where I had this pseudo company. Um, there was also a project that I did, um, and this was a couple of years prior to Edcredo, which was called Ophiux, um, was about, which was a, another pseudo kind of big pharma, um, company. And, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I'm particularly interested in how that kind of operation works with these with these huge companies. Um, I mean, with yeah, I'll use Ophiuchs actually as an example. Um, but I mean, I guess like yeah, definitely like I think science is sort of influenced and um, science fiction like almost becomes science i mean our imaginations of what the future is going to be like becomes the future that's you know i mean maybe thinking about like donna haraway or something like that as well i mean you know when she talks about what stories that we tell each other those stories become you know they matter and they become like our, our kind of reality and like we have we we are creating those those stories in our futures all the time um, I mean, I was particularly looking for that project at like genetic like sequencing like companies, and there's one that's like the leader in that field um, that's called Illumina, and I couldn't help but thinking that that sounds like Illuminati or something. I mean, but there's there's loads of them. The list kind of goes on and on about using a name and then almost like structuring their narrative kind of like around this and like what they actually do. I mean, big pharma companies like the claims that they kind of make as well are like massive. I mean, like with genetics, for example, it's like, oh, we can um, analyze all this data, take all this genetic information and then um, do all this crazy stuff with it. But then actually when you speak to the scientists that are working with this stuff, they, they sort of say that they know very little about it. They, they, they know like less than 2% of the genetic, genetic code. and um, there's there's so much that they don't know, but the way that the company's narrative is kind of like written and um, and how they put themselves out there is seen as this kind of like all powerful, all seeing, I don't know, like big data god or something. And um, 
you know, that kind of convinces people and makes people believe that that things maybe are more, you know, more powerful. And maybe that also relates to, you know, what we were talking about before, about this kind of loss maybe in our society of of community and like worship and, and, and religion and like or God or something like it's like you know like big data or something like that has replaced this it's like this kind of like system of of abstracting our data and computation has become this kind of like all-powerful entity that nobody that nobody fucking understands and yeah it's become so complex that almost becomes this kind of like all-powerful organism that's then kind of like backed up with these um <laughs> the names that they call it and things like that i don't know another aspect to your work is these online projects um like image blog projects your tumblers uh that i think i've read you were saying uh that they initially started as like visual scrapbooks for uh, your works, but have, have grown into really interesting projects in themselves. So uh, things like the the Dark Creatures blog, um, these really strange creatures, images of creatures that you you wouldn't even think to be real. Yeah. But also in your, your works and um, your videos and your work in general, um, there seems to be a lot of found images. And I would sort of say maybe the, the aesthetics of image searching like how uh, the accumulation and aggregation of images is just sort of part of our everyday life uh, in our visual culture and how we see the world. I was wondering, do, do you think this kind of logic of image searching through our online lives and how we see the world through that lens when we're online has affected how we make sense of the world even when we're offline? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I do use Google Images um, quite a lot within my work and I mean I think that image searching like first and foremost like this visibility of like what is out there and what's been you know maybe created as artworks or and that's mixed with you know other imagery of like lots of crazy other stuff and, and memes and, and everything else. I mean, it's a whole massive, I mean, it's exhausting, like first and foremost, the, um, the amount of images and everything else that we have um, like access to now. So I guess, I don't know, I guess like with producing work these days, it feels like when google image search exists that there's just no point in actually making anything anymore <laughs> i mean it's almost like like i'm kind of acting as this i don't know like other you know just another filter of those of those images of the stuff that's out there just another filter just another like putting my own kind of like logic on a reconstitution of those things it seems very pointless for me to like actually actually kind of like make something it's like it's like everything's already been made everything is out there like what would possibly be the point of just adding more like noise to that or something if that makes sense mm. um so but i mean on the other side i guess i'm kind of interested i mean i guess like with the internet nowadays it seems like well it is um i mean it's very much controlled um, i mean what we see we we normally go through the same interfaces we're all using 
well, we're on Whereby, but we're all using Zoom. We all use Facebook. We all use Google Image Search. So there's these massive, um, you know, corporations that exist that we see most of the internet from. I mean, I'm still quite interested in like how an internet search, how you could like get below the surface still, how you could like um, still find strange things, I guess, on the internet and like this kind of like act of discovery of, um, uh, I don't know, like these strange sites or like, you know, just looking at strange creatures or something online that, um, I mean, I guess there's the kind of like an analogy of like the surface web and then, you know, like as you go deeper, there's the, there's the deep web or something and that's a bit like the sea or something like that. But what if, you know, you explore the kind of like depths of it, you know, you might find these really strange things. So, um, so yeah, I guess I tried to do that, um, you know, explore those, those other realms, those deeper realms within the work. So I, I did want to raise this, uh, I guess, quite dated term now of post-internet art, because uh, I guess when your work was emerging in the 2010s, it was uh, a, a bit of a time of when this word was a big buzzword. And what was interesting about it, I guess the work did, uh, like post-internet art did have its own aesthetic sensibilities, but the work... Uh, it, it, post-internet art seemed as much to be about how the internet was creating a flattened media space, or I guess that's what was interesting to me about it. So, like, the image production of uh, contemporary art culture kind of collapses in with uh, the image production of uh, popular culture, like music culture uh, and celebrity culture, through it all being distributed in the same medium, in a way. How, like, a... a, a image blog on Tumblr could be taken seriously by a blue chip art gallery, but also find crossover appeal outside of the art world. So now it seems you have this um, moment of almost collapse, I suppose, where the old institutions, some of these old institutions like fairs and things aren't really working yeah. in this uh, in this online world. But uh, I was wondering what your thoughts are on maybe um, if art is going through a bit of a shift in meaning, maybe if it's moving more into the realm of uh, an extension of popular culture as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, my, I mean, I remember that time and being very excited by the post-internet movement at that time and that, um, I guess, I guess for me in the way that I was working, it really gave me I, I always had a problem with kind of creating, I don't know, creating artworks and creating finished pieces of work for like gallery settings and like having this thing that I would put out in the world as this kind of like resolved thing. I mean, I think for me, it was always about like the process and how over a period of time, something can transform and um, evolve into something else. And I guess, yeah, post-internet arts and the way that the aesthetics of the internet kind of influenced it. I mean, it, it sort of like gave me a way of that, that, that I was allowed to work in a way that wasn't so like precious. So, I mean, for example, it meant that if I like posted a found image online, then or created like an image, you know, like and create these Tumblr blogs, then I could think about that as an artwork. Um, 
as much as I think I think about an artwork of something that took me two years to research and then made this huge installation, do you know what I mean? This kind of like collapse of like that, that kind of hierarchy. And also what you said about this collapse of kind of um, like art just becoming p part of this sort of circulatory network of, of other images and other cultural things or, or not cultural things, like just kind of everyday things, I guess, or that it, yeah, that it all becomes kind of flattened somehow. But I think that there's, I don't know, I always think that art is in a lot of ways like behind somehow with certain other forms of you know maybe popular production as well i mean i think that you know when you see a uh, i don't know like a crazy meme or something online i think that they they probably have more agency like do more work like make you think about like certain things or just make you laugh or you know or you know they, they have the ability to kind of go viral and reach more people as well that they're kind of like a lot of the times far more interesting you know in how they operate than than something that's called an artwork um so so yeah i guess i'm interested in like how yeah in that and like how yeah how certain ideas or images can like travel throughout got to keep saying network it's such a <laughs> like <laughs> but you know how they can travel across the internet across the network and and sort of like yeah like mutate and transform um and become these kind of like yeah strange powerful like totems of culture or something um yeah and i find that more far more interesting maybe than a lot of art stuff i mean of course a lot of artists do use memes and mimetic stuff as well well i think that's a great point to wrap up on so uh thank you so much jerry holder for joining me today thank you so much it was so nice to chat you've been listening to aqmb's artist statement podcast if you'd like to hear more bi-monthly episodes like this one consider signing up to our patreon at patreon.com aqmb your support will help ensure the future of the series, as well as our commitment to presenting fresh editorial perspectives around art, music, and online culture at aqmb.com. Our theme music is Coughing Up Pearls by Felicita. See you next time.